are broken. Rail.com, I'm Ben Flanagan. This is Outbreak Alabama, stories from a pandemic. As the novel coronavirus wreaks havoc in Alabama and across the world, these are the stories of those seeking to survive the disease and its economic strain. This is a time to make personal and collective decisions about who we are going to be tomorrow and what path we're going to leave for our children and our grandchildren. I mean, this has happened in the middle of a pandemic when we've all been sitting at home, being isolated with ourselves and our families, when we're now craving some kind of social interaction, but many people are afraid to leave their homes. Today we hear from AL.com columnist Roy S. Johnson. Roy is a veteran journalist who in the last week has written powerful columns related to the death of George Floyd, race in America, and the pain that he felt watching the Birmingham protests on Sunday night. The fight against police brutality and racial injustice continues, even in the midst of a pandemic that has killed more than 100,000 Americans, including 651 deaths in Alabama as of Tuesday. Roy and I covered several topics, like the state and nation's collective unrest, how the protests have overtaken COVID-19 in the news cycle, the risk of spreading the virus during protests, and why he's optimistic about the future. Roy, in your latest column, you write about wrestling with what you call a cyclone of wrenching emotions, wrestling with anger, pain, fatigue, frustration. After what we saw in Birmingham on Sunday, can you describe what it is specifically that is stirring those feelings within you right now? Well, certainly it began a week ago uh, at the just first sight of seeing George Floyd beneath the knee of this police officer. When it first crossed my timeline, I really swept past it. I couldn't look at it. It was, it was, it was just a repetition of something that I'd seen in other African-Americans and other Americans had seen so many times and, and probably whisked past it. Uh, but something about it made me cringe. And then, of course, when I saw the video and heard him pleading for his life, it hurt. I know that sounds simple, but and it was exhausting. It was uh, infuriating, not just in how he died in a way that and this may sound harsh. You know, I've often said if, if, if that had been a dog, there would have been an outrage all over the country. The ASPCA and others would have would have leapt to the dog's defense. And yet, uh, at first, I think America just couldn't believe it. And I am I'm heartened. I was heartened by the swift reaction of the Minneapolis police force and firing the four officers. Uh, of course, 
uh, for some it was the same day as the woman in Central Park confronted a bird watcher and perceived him as threatening and called 911. So those two things on the same day uh, were just the proverbial straw that for many of us who are African-American, but many of us who have experienced at least some encounter with police, not necessarily an injustice, but who have seen our brothers and sisters uh, not just mistreated in various forms, not just incarcerated at levels uh, higher than others, but killed, killed on video, killed often without accountability and repercussions. And so as we as we try to remain positive about our nation and try to focus on the progress that we've experienced in the last decades, an event like that sets those of us who've been through things back. Now, I'm 64 years old, so I'm, I'm old enough to remember segregation in my hometown of Tulsa, Oklahoma. So uh, I'm a glass half full person, and I'm, I'm constantly saying that no matter where we are, it's better than where we were. But for the last few days, uh, that, that theory has been shaken quite a bit, and, and I'm pulling out of it. I'm uh, optimistic again about the general reaction, not just in Minneapolis and in New York, uh, but also around the country, but that we still have a long way to go. Just today, I received a, a racist email, and, and I will say that the response to my columns this week has been overwhelmingly positive. So I don't always like to focus on the negative, but it's just a reminder that no matter how far we've come, no matter how many positive hearts that are out there, there are still some that are just so deeply seated with hate that they will pick up uh, their computer and type the N-word and, and, and worse into um, to someone who, who basically just expressed an opinion. So that just happened today. So just a reminder, keep typing, keep writing, keep speaking, because we, we still have a long way to go. We've already seen too many viral moments of police brutality that just too often result in death and murder now for several years straight. And even years ago, they inspired outrage, but here we are again. And one sentiment that I've heard many times over the last few days is this feels different just in terms of the scope of the protests and the lifespan of the outrage so far but why do you think it's taken this long to reach a collective boiling point? Like even after national reactions to the deaths of Trayvon Martin and Eric Garner and Sandra Bland and so many other incidents like that, does this feel different to you? It may be a little bit early to declare this is different. It is It is still very raw and certainly video, and thank God we're in the age of video, where uh, the evidence of these actions is there for the world to see, for anyone to see on their telephone and on their, their television and on their laptop and, and to to hear the cries of him pleading for his life, to hear that officer kept his knee on Floyd's neck for eight minutes and 43 seconds, including almost three minutes after he had become non-responsive, after he had become unconscious. There's not anyone on the planet with with humanity who couldn't be hurt by that. I don't care, care what your background, your culture, your race, that was inhumane. And maybe it just touched people in a place where, you know, even a 
raw video of someone being shot down as we've seen certain you know, videos of other incidents. We watched black men get shot by cops on Facebook Live before, but this was nine minutes of placing a human being on the ground, a human being who was unarmed, a human being was pleading for his life, that was calling for his dead mother, for goodness sakes. So that, I think, just touched people differently. Again, it will remain to be seen whether this is a moment or a movement. But my hope is that not only does this spark us to maintain and demand accountability and justice for George Floyd and his family, but to hold our police to a higher standard to ensure that there's better training and to look at the other inequities, not just in the criminal justice system, but to just decide we're going to be different. This is this is a time to make personal and collective decisions about who we are going to be tomorrow and what path we're going to leave for our children and our grandchildren. I mean, this has happened in the middle of a pandemic when we've all been sitting at home, being isolated with ourselves and our families, when we're now craving some kind of social interaction, but many people are afraid to leave their homes. But it's given us time to think and to ponder, how can I be better out of this? So hopefully and thankfully, people are reaching out. They're reaching towards each other. They're asking questions of each other that they didn't ask before. They're reaching out to people who don't necessarily look like them and saying, okay, uh, tell me about your journey. Tell me why you feel the way you do. And then actually listening to them. I think, unfortunately, we're coming out of an era that may be the most divisive in my lifetime. Uh, Certainly it's driven by politics and a a time when the, the two sides of the aisle might as well be fighting a civil war as opposed to leading a united nation towards being better not just for those who are rich and those at the top, but for those who may least be able to um, sustain themselves. So hopefully as we creep out of the pandemic, which will take obviously several more months, as we maintain our vigilance in ensuring that there's justice for George Floyd and his family, that we also take a look at the other inequities, the inequities of education, where we saw that online learning, which is now going to be a continued staple in our education system, is not equitable because not every neighborhood has hotspots. How can we say we want to educate all of our children when the simple act of not having access to the internet will put one group of students behind another every day? So hopefully we will address things like that. We will address the disparities in healthcare that are being revealed again in numbers that didn't surprise me at all when we learned that African-Americans are disproportionately infected and killed by COVID-19. That didn't surprise me because we over-index, of course, on those uh, diseases that are most impacted by the virus, Uh, your cardiovascular illnesses that are mostly a result of of lack of access to quality health care and lifestyle choices, which can be influenced by things like food deserts. So this is a time for us individually and collectively to look at ourselves and decide who we want to be tomorrow for our children and grandchildren, because I do think the world's gonna look back on 2020. There will be case studies, there will be thesis, there will be all kinds of things done, but it's too early to decide how we will be treated by history. 
Uh, my pastor last week said that, that, that history will either notice us for our silence or our voice. And it, it's my, my hope that we get remembered for the voice that we raised and for the actions that we took rather than the silence of doing nothing and saying nothing at a time like this. This is a podcast about coronavirus and the impact that it has on Alabama. And I wanted to ask you about how the protests and general unrest are taking place in the midst of one of the worst health crises in American history. And and it's really overtaken not only the news cycle, but as I said earlier, the hearts and minds of people nationwide. And for nearly a week straight now, COVID-19 feels like an afterthought. What do you think that says about what's happening in America right now? Well, certainly people had COVID-19 fatigue (laughs) and almost anything could have distracted them from the condition that was created by efforts to stem the spread of the virus, uh, restrictions that were totally necessary and maybe difficult to know how much they worked because we're still looking at statistics in terms of new cases and deaths. But being mindful, of course, that there could have been a lot worse had we not enacted those restrictions It is a frightening time as people begin to go about their lives. I constantly try to remind people that we are not back to normal, that the threat of the virus is as strong as it was in March. You know, I think we will be washing our hands and covering our faces for a while. We'll all become germaphobes, at at least until there's a vaccine, which won't realistically likely happen until 2021. But even then, even then, the Virus has rocked our institutions. I've mentioned education, the workplace. Companies have found out that they are able to function remotely, so it remains to be seen how that impacts the uh, commercial real estate industry. So this is like the internet. I mean, there won't be an industry that's probably not impacted by this, from music, other forms of entertainment, sports, obviously, we're seeing. And when will be the next time we see a full stadium during college football season. So I think it'll it'll come back as in terms of our consciousness as uh, people go out of their homes and begin to gather in places. I hope they're aware of social distancing. Certainly that was not the case with the protests. And, and I pray that there's not a spike in cases in the month of June as a result of graduations and, and young people who just can't keep themselves from hugging are as a result of the protests that we're seeing around the country and just in, and just people who seem to be lacking a respect and understanding for the virus by either not wearing a mask or gathering in, at beaches like coronavirus never happened. I hope our ignorance doesn't cost us. I hope our, our, our blindness to the severity of the virus at this juncture doesn't hurt us and doesn't kill us in the future, but it remains again to be seen If that spike comes, and maybe we have to be reminded again that this is real and it's still real and it's going to be real for a while. Yeah, and I think for so many people, Roy, the cause and the substance behind the protests seems to outweigh the risk of catching or even spreading the virus. How do you weigh the risk involved with speaking out about injustice while staying safe during a global pandemic where numbers are still on the rise? It's a lot, lot to unpack in that, in that question. Uh, we all have to do our jobs. And, and my job is to 
call attention to things that I believe are important for many of the much of the last couple of months. That's been about the coronavirus. And I, I think in I've done my part and others on our team have done our part to call attention to that. Uh, in the last week, the greatest need was to shed light on this egregious event in Minneapolis and really would admit to give it some context to uh, chronicle what it means in this place and time and what we're going to do about it, what we're going to do with it. I think it was wonderful on Sunday to see the diverse gathering in Kelly Ingram Park and people who not just heard the hurt and pain of others, but who committed to almost recreating that rainbow of a um, movement that sparked change in the early 60s. People forget that there were many whites involved with that movement. So it's a balancing act that we're all going to have to conduct every day as we go about our lives, as, as we go back to work, as we pursue summer leisure activities, and as we decide what to do with our new level of consciousness. I have seen families make decisions to contribute to organizations that work towards injustice. I have had families reach out to me to request holding talking sessions with people in their area who don't look like them. I've had people do something as simple as ask for a list of of books by African-American authors. Uh, These are whites, of course, asking for books of of African-American authors that they can read. So I think consciousness is probably the key word for this next phase of new normal, consciousness about corona, consciousness about injustice, and then consciousness about what we're doing every day to not just improve ourselves, but to improve our neighborhoods and our communities, and hopefully improve our nation as we move towards a critical election in November. If we take that train, the consciousness train, if we, if we embrace that for the next few months, It'll be interesting to see where we are at the end of the year, because we all have to be more conscious every day, every hour and every moment. And if not, there could be some serious repercussions, particularly as it relates to the coronavirus. You and others have used your platform to tell white people to listen. What do you mean specifically and what can people do with that information once they've listened? Listening is what I do and what you do in our business. Uh, In order for us to tell stories, we have to hear stories. When I interview people, I'm not just asking questions. I'm listening, listening for their responses, not just their words, but how they express them, listening for clues that might lead me down another place where they are revealing something maybe they didn't even expect to reveal. You know, I think, unfortunately, in the last few years, we've reached a place where we stopped listening to each other. In many ways, we stopped speaking to each other unless we were speaking to people who were exactly like us or who felt the same as we did. So it becomes a chorus of a single a single voice as opposed to a chorus of diverse voices. When the event in Minneapolis happened, I did have whites reach out via email, text message, Facebook. What can I do? What can I do to help move us from this place. So that column was inspired by some of those questions. And rather than having to answer them several times, I said, well, let me just answer them in a column. And as I mentioned earlier, the response to it has been overwhelmingly positive. I would say 98%. Yes, 
there were some who took it personally and decided to say, well, I've been good. I'm a good white person. I've got black friends and, and you know, I've always treated them fairly. I said, well, do you know where they were born? Do you know how many siblings they had? Have they ever had them over your house? Those are the, the ways I define true friendship, not just whether I, your coworker and I know you and consider you a nice person. Have I sat down and asked you, tell me about your life. Tell me about your journey. I think people make assumptions about each other without hearing about the path that led them to that place. And I've often had that done to me. And when I share with people my upbringing in Tulsa, Oklahoma, the fact that my father died when I was 12 years old, the fact that uh, he had a, a store on what was then Black Wall Street to share some of the experiences of uh, prejudice that I personally remember. I was a young child, but the things that I remember when I share some of the things that I heard going through corporate America, things that people said in front of me, the way people would diminish me or say, well, you must only be here because you're black and you're in affirmative action. To hear those things, it gives people a better understanding as to what I had to go through to get where I am, but also help them understand they didn't have to do that. They didn't have to experience those things. I had people who say, well, I've pulled myself up on my own. I said, that's great. No one was trying to pull you back. So unless you're, you you have that knowledge and you listen to people and and hear what they've experienced, then maybe then you don't you can't empathize with them. So we reached a place where we stopped empathizing with each other because we were only talking to people like ourselves. So I think it's important. It's it's paramount for us right now to listen. I try to listen to the racists. I said, why? I mean, I get some hateful email and I try to I do respond to every email. And at some point I ask people, why are you so mad? Just Tell me why you're mad. Now, some respond and, and some actually become engaging conversations. But when people wake up in the morning and, you know, want to send me an email with an epithet in it, and I'm just like, who wakes up mad? Why? <laughs> why are you waking up mad? So I, I just think we have an, an, an important and paramount opportunity now in the midst of this pandemic, in the midst, in the wake of this crisis to take a step back, take a deep breath, look around, ask questions and listen and use that information to maybe become more empathetic and to find that we ultimately, and I do believe this, have more in common than we have in differences. Roy, thank you so much. You've done some amazing work lately and I look forward to reading more of it soon. All right, Ben, thanks for having me. If you or anyone you know is affected by coronavirus and want to share your story, please email bflanagan at al.com. That's B-F-L-A-N-A-G-A-N at al.com. For all of our coverage on the outbreak and how it continues to impact Alabama, visit al.com slash coronavirus. If you like the show, please rate us and write a review. Thanks for listening.